Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, if very regular, in fact, every seven days or so, Sunday Mailbag Edition. I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and I'm joined by the Managing Director of Strawman.com, the man himself, Andrew Page. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, mate. I think it's entirely possible for something to be special and regular. So I completely agree, mate. Mm. I completely agree. Let's, let's go with that. Um, I, I appreciate that. Strawman.com, mate, if it's not a private investment club, what is it? <laughs> I, I see what you did there. <laughs> it's uh, an exclusive <laughs> member organisation. Can I put it that way? You can, although it does sound like uh, chaos <laughs> or one cheating? of those kind of, it sounds like, a, one of, you know, you should have a secret lair somewhere in a, under a volcano or something. No, mate, look, once, you, once you've got a definition that works, you just go with that. <laughs> and it, you know, let's call a spade a spade. We're, we're a private investment club. <laughs> spade a bloody shovel. People right, share ideas and we, we have public portfolios and, yeah, we try and we try and uncover a few hidden gems is what we try All to do. I'm saying, mate, is every time you choose to use private investment club rather than something else, you're disappointing a legions of fans who are listening in <laughs> just to hear you try and grapple with a new definition. So, uh, I, But I appreciate you have to do what you have to do. Mate, uh, let's get on with the podcast. We've got so many questions in the mailbag, so we're going to get through as many as we possibly can. We will always fall short of my expectations because uh, I want to answer as many of our um, listeners' questions as we can, but we're trying desperately to also give it good uh, good coverage and enough content, context and content. Try saying that quickly to make it fun. Uh, first question, mate, comes from Glenn. He says, G'day, fools. I have to start with the obligatory pl- praise for the good work you do on the podcast, but I genuinely mean it. Love your work. <sighs> See, Thanks. you had me at that point, Glenn, and then he says... Uh, Glenn Page, I think it is. I am especially liking the perspective Ram has offered since joining. Mm-hmm. Thank, thanks, Glenn. That's great, mate. Awesome. Uh, anyway, he says now <laughs> for the quiz. I, I, can I say, mate, I am. I say this semi-regularly. I thoroughly enjoy doing the podcast with you. It's always an absolute ball. We get to talk about investing, the stuff we'd be talking about anyway. If you and I just grabbed, jumped on the phone, we'd be talking about the same stuff anyway. So it's nice to be able to do well, it. That's and, the thing. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like work. it doesn't feel like work, does it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is just as well because you're not getting paid for doing this. So uh, there you go. <laughs> maybe that's appropriate then. <laughs> yeah. Glenn says now for the question. You're often speaking about having a portfolio that, in air quotes beats the market, which I know we all want. How exactly can I measure if my portfolio has been market beating? The main thing I can't wrap my head around is compounding and time in the market when competing with the index, which has the advantage of time. For example, measuring 60 grand invested at a single point in time five years ago is very different to having invested $1,000 per month for the last 60 months. In the monthly instalment example, the last $1,000 invested last month hasn't had the time to grow and compound like the index has been able to. You keep going off a bigger base. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but at the moment I just compare my daily percentage gains against the ASX gain for the day. And I call it a win if I beat the index more days than it beats me. Hopefully that ramble makes sense. Full on. And that's from Glenn. What do you reckon, mate? How do you, how do you go about measuring a portfolio when you're adding money regularly? It's a good well, question. It, it, it actually, it's one of those things that's not that hard, but you can really go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so, you really can. You know, there's there's platforms out there that you can pay that'll do this all for you because you you, yeah. you can only measure each lump of capital. So if you put a thousand dollars in yeah. today, then you've got to track it against the market today. Yep. You got to include dividends in both instances, and and that's a pretty good way of doing it. But when you start, every time you add money, you have to add <laughs> the equivalent money to like this yeah. this, this benchmark. So yeah. we do it on Strawman, in fact. So every every time you buy something, you are tracked against money that's just all put mm. in the index. Mm. Um, 
so there's there's two points I would make. One is don't overthink it to that yep. degree. Yeah. Um, do, do you know what I mean? It's, it, the, the other one would be is if if it is important to be uh, as accurate as you want to be on it, go with ShareSite or one of these other things, and yep. you'll you'll find that they they track all of that exactly for you and benchmark it against individual positions against the market and the whole thing against the market. But you'll have a sense. You'll have a sense. I mean, this is the thing. When in the latter example that you give, it's it's going to be far more the capital injection that's the determinant of how that pile of cash grows, at least at least in the in the first little while. So it's all it's 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 hard to be too accurate at that. Anyway, all all I'm saying is don't ever think it. You're doing exactly the right thing. Whack it into a to a software application that'll measure it all for you uh, eventually. But yeah, I don't know. What what would you say, mate? I agree completely with your point about not overthinking it, and I really struggle on this one on both sides. So I use ShareSite as well. Do you still have an agreement with ShareSite, by the way? I do. Like I, I mentioned it so often, I was trying. I was really okay. trying hard not to mention it. Um, no, you're not going to mention. Given you mentioned, I just want to kind of declare it for our listeners. So just so you know, um, and in saying that, I don't have one, and I'm happy to recommend it as well. So yeah, uh, I, think I use it on the same page. I use there. it myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's worth um, worth chatting about uh, that. I think. I, so I use share site and that's how I do it. It's hard. I, on one hand, I say you absolutely want to make sure you're beating the market because if you're not, you're costing yourself money and you're, you're, doing, you're doing a whole lot of work for nothing, right? If you mm. can't beat the market, go and buy an index. Um, that's what most people probably should do. If you're going to try and beat the market, you want to make sure you are beating the market. So you do want to try and track it, but to your point, you don't want to overthink it. So I completely agree with that. It's trying to find the balance is tough. Really simply, mate, the way that, as you know, we do it at The Motley Fool for some of our services that aren't portfolios is we literally just kind of grab the ASX on the same day as we make the investment, track all those individually, and then just average them out. Yeah, that's and it's not, it's not, yeah. You, don't, you don't get annualized return, but we, you know, I, we made our very first recommendation in December 2011, and we took the ASX's level at that point and the share price at that point, and we track them both since. Now, you've got to include dividends, as you say, so that's important. Um, but we literally went, okay, well, you know, that, that recommendation is up X percent since, the recommend, since, we, since we recommended it. The market is up Y percent. And then you do that across all of the companies you buy, and just average that out. And well, whether you, whether you annualize it or not, or you can argue the toss over exactly to how to do it, yeah. it's, as long yeah. as it's an apples with apples comparison. Yes. Because this, the, the, whatever you're doing with your shares, you're doing the same with the benchmark. Spot on. So, so yeah, and, and that, that's going to give you the measure of whether you're outperforming or not. Yeah. So, Glenn, if, if it's useful, just literally every month if you're putting $1,000 in, the day you put $1,000 in, write down the value. Now, if you find the All Lords Accumulation Index, that one includes dividends, which is the best one to go with. Um, but generally speaking, if you can grab that at the, on the same day, just literally track that over time, track your purchase over time and average those out across them all. So one of our stocks is up, you know, 900%, one's down 90% and lots in between. Um, average all that out for the individual recommendations, average out the market and you'll get some sort of return. To Andrew's point, you can annualize it. <laughs> the, the boffins tend to, and it's not a bad thing to do, but as long, as long as, you're annual, as long as you're looking at both metrics in the same way, there is absolutely no need to annualize the numbers because they annualize the same way roughly as long as the averages work the same way. So yep. um, whether you annualize or not, that's the way I would do it. Um, alternatively, mate, just kind of, you know, if you can eyeball it and kind of be roughly right, I think even your daily one's not bad. The only concern I have with that one is you tend to then overemphasize each day's move and you maybe lose the bigger picture, but that's not a bad way to do it. Well, that, that was the point I was, I was going to make. I forget the stat, but I mean, there have obviously been studies on this. And even if you take the very, very best fun, performing fund managers, I mean, they still underperform two out of five years or whatever, yeah, whatever the number right. happens to be. So that's the, the, right. That's right. This is, this is the hard thing in this game is that even yeah, when you're yeah. extraordinarily good, you're going to have periods of underperformance. So you want to keep, you want to keep an eye on it, but you also want to understand why, if there is an underperformance, uh -huh. why is it? Uh -huh. Is it just because the market hasn't realized that value that you're seeing yet and the investment yeah. case is still on track or have you have you made a horrible mistake but yeah don't 
it, it's more about how that averages out over the long term, of course, yeah. as always. I will add one thing too very quickly, which is just be careful with the count and the number of days you beat. I did some numbers made ages ago. So corporate travel management, I mentioned on Friday, long-term shelving of mine, long-term recommendation at the share advisor. It's up like tenfold. What's really, so I, I, humble brag, hashtag humble brag, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's up really, really strongly, right? So there's that. And I only say that because when I did the numbers, it was something like, it was a positive, it beat the market 52% of the time. Yeah, it's always and like lost, that. Yep. But, 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 that's what, so, but if you're only counting the days, yep. Glenn might say, well, I, I, I beat the market 52%, I lost 48%, therefore I'm only just ahead. Turns out corporate travel management's up tenfold versus the market that might have doubled or something. Um, it, it, so relatively, even though the number of days you beat was only small, the, both the size of the beat when you beat and the size of the loss is important. And of course, when you compound that 52%, it does make a difference. But I just want to mention it to Glenn because if he's kind of feeling like, well, it's roughly half, you can still beat the market by a meaningful standard with roughly half outperformance out because the, the good days tend to be much better than the bad days and they tend to beat the market by a lot more. So you compounding that does make a bit of a difference. I've seen that study done just for the market as a whole. It is, it is, oh, really, cl- it is really close to 50-50. In, I yeah. forget the exact number in terms of what it is on it. If you just count up days versus down days, but it's the magnitude yeah. of those days yeah. that, that matters. It is. And that, yeah, and that's, that's the only problem with, with Glenn's approach. But mate, not a bad approach at all. Here's one from... Uh, do, 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 do. What have I got here? Here we go. By the way, that's that's why day trading such a bad idea, right? Because it does yes, the shorter exactly. the time frame, yeah, the more right. the more of a coin flip it is. You can't compound. Well, you actually can't compound it. That's, that's yeah. the other thing, right? It's like you, if you if you're right fifty two percent of the days, and you make you're right by a little bit, you want to yeah. be you want to have the value of that compounding because if you can make a couple of good days that outperform over time and compound that money each time, that's where yeah. the, that's where the win comes from. Totally. Um, all right. Question from Dan. G'day, Scott and Ram. I'm absolutely loving the podcast. Thank you, mate. You're asking for questions for the mailbag. I've got a thousand. Oh, here we go. Um, I'll start with two if that's okay. I've been investing for two years and invested in 20-odd companies. Well done. I plan to continue my investing journey every fortnight. I'm investing my money every fortnight. Would it be wise to continue to invest in the same companies I already have or continue to diversify with more companies that I'm interested in. Also, if you're invested in a company such as A2 Milk or Kogan, drink, he says, which I'm not yeah. invested in, and it dropped 30 to 40%, would you continue to buy more shares in the company? Or would you classify that as catching a falling knife, doubling down, or just buying the dip? Keep up the great work. I look forward to more episodes. Full on, fellas, from Dan. Good questions, mate. I think we've done the diversify question a few times in different formats. Um, I'm just going to say very quickly, we would generally say as long as you're not adding money to a position that's already too significant, you're kind of even more overweight and you're kind of in, uh, probably putting your portfolio out of balance a little bit, we say buy, buy your best idea. Is that fair to say, Ram? Always. That, that's it. doesn't matter how many, you own, day, how many you've got. Yeah. Whether you own it or not or whether you're up or down or whatever it is, if, yeah. if this is the best idea now and it's not yeah. going to be too overweight or under, necessarily underweight in your portfolio, yes. that's the one yes. you buy. Yep, cool. Um, the only thing I would add to that, mate, is just the only other thing I would think about with that is the weighting of a sector or a risk in your portfolio. Yeah. So if I own four banks and the fi- I want to buy a fifth bank that was small, it wouldn't be overweight in my portfolio. But if I've already owned four banks now, 85% of my totally. portfolio, adding a fifth doesn't necessarily do it. So buy your, buy your best idea as long as it doesn't put your portfolio out of kilter in, in, any, in any specific or general way. Yep. Um, if A2 or Kogan or something else dropped 30 to 40%, would you buy more shares? Is it is it catching a falling knife? Is it doubling down or is it buying the dip? How do you I think hate, about that? I hate that saying, catching a falling knife. It just <laughs> me bugs too. me to no that. end. It's, it's like, here's the other thing. It's like, oh, I'll wait for it to bounce. I mean, you don't, 
a, a bounce isn't obvious until it's in yeah, hindsight. Right. And then it's like, oh, it's bounced. It's now back up again. Like yeah. it's, it's I missed the opportunity. Of, I'm not going to buy it now. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. I hate it. So <laughs> so the, the the end of the day, it, it, this is why you need an independent view of, of value. So yeah, yeah. It, it depends is the answer. Sometimes a stock can fall 30% and then go on to lose 90% from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so exactly, it's not, right? it's not about, it, it's more about is the market being reasonable with this? Mm. So the market, as we know, often overreacts to news. Um, and and sometimes sometimes I mean this is the, this is what we spoke about on on Friday right with Kogan drink, um, you know there's, there's a there's a bunch of reasons not to sort of like it. the market's in a bit of a funk but you could take the other view in that in that case that is a case of buying buying more it, it, it yeah. might be though um, that, that you stay the hell away so you you need to you can't let the market tell you what to think the market there is to offer you an opportunity each day saying hey I'll buy or sell your shares at this price if you're interested most days you won't be. Um, but you can't really know what to answer unless you actually independently think, well, I think shares are worth this much and I think they're worth this much because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, right. I completely agree. Um, yeah, I'm glad to that at four. I hate it. Here's the problem, right? The, oh man, so, so humans are weird, right? Our psychology is completely screwed up. We are not made biologically, evolutionarily for investing. We're just not, right? And no. So you've got to fight your biology the whole time. Who wants to catch a falling knife? Nobody. Of course it's a silly, of course it's a great idea. No one would catch a falling knife. So catching a falling knife therefore is bad. Therefore you shouldn't buy shares that are down. Except that it's not doesn't work that way. Like you know each each of the statements is logically correct. I'm going to go on, I'm going to go on a very small tangential rant mate which I really shouldn't do. Go for um, it. Politicians in the uh, Andrew Bragg, God love him, Senator Andrew Bragg was saying we can't be a hermit kingdom therefore we should open up when we get the 70% vaccination. <laughs> <laughs> and like so, okay, so so and everyone on Twitter hears what they want to hear, right? So when I say that's crap, they go, well, "Of course we'd open up at seventy percent." I'm like, "No, that wasn't the point I made. I made the mm. point that one doesn't lead to the other, right? Not wanting to be a hermit kingdom is one thing. Opening up at an appropriate level of vaccination is a different thing. One does not prove the other. There is no precondition which says, you know, either we're locked down for a hundred years or we have to open up at seventy percent. Mm. You may want to open up seventy percent. That might be fine. You might not want to be a hermit kingdom. That's also fine." The two aren't necessarily the same thing. It doesn't follow that just because we don't want to be a hermit kingdom means we have to then believe whatever the next thing's out of someone's mouth is. I could That's say- called a false equivalence or something, false, isn't yeah, it? I, yeah. I don't, we, don't, we don't want to be a hermit kingdom, therefore I should be allowed to walk down the street naked. Mm. Yeah. No, the first can still be true. The second is really not a good idea. Or it might be a great idea, but it, it, one doesn't follow. As you say, the false equivalence is not true. So yep. yes, catching a falling knife is a bad idea. Would you want to buy chairs that are cheap if they're worth more in the future? Hell Yes. Uh, so you know, to your point, Andrew, you know, there's, uh, I, I'll, I will again roll this one out. It's a horribly overused example. I own Amazon shares. Blah blah blah. Amazon went from a, from three to one hundred to nine. They're now three thousand two hundred dollars. Mm. Ask anybody how they felt about catching that falling knife between one hundred and nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. at any point, you bought it. You bought it one hundred. You bought it eighty, and then it went to nine. Oh, I caught the falling knife. I'm an idiot. Well, if you kept those shares, you're up forty fold. Guess what, dude? No one's mm. complaining about catching the Amazon falling knife, right? Yeah. Now. You wanted to buy AMP five years ago. That was a that was a debacle of an idea. Mm. Was it was it bad? You're catching a falling knife. No, it was just a bad business. It's, so it's it doesn't all pre- matter. It's all predicated on the notion that to do well as an investor, you have to buy at quote unquote the bottom. Yes, and yes. and it's it's not. In fact, what yeah. what history shows you can miss the bottom by a, a wide margin. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, what matters is that you're just accumulating great assets that are undervalued. That's yes. what outs over time. So, like, yes, is it better to buy at the bottom? Of course it is. There's no argument yeah. about yeah. that. But don't don't feel as though if you buy something and it continues to fall down that you you've necessarily made a bad decision. I think that's happened pretty much on all the times I've bought. Whenever <laughs> there's been a market yeah. sell off, like it sucks. Yeah. But that's yeah. not that's not the that's not the game you're trying to play. 
Dan, if I had a company I liked and the shares were 30 or 40% cheaper, as long as the business hadn't deteriorated or was meaningfully long-term broken or, or, or permanently broken, uh, permanently just, you know, worth less, I would love to buy shares at 30 or 40% less. So, yes. Now, I'm not going to wait for that fall either, by the way, because, again, uh, you know, at Amazon, when it went to, from 100 to 9, then back to 50, then to 100, then to 200, then to 500, then to 1,000, if I was waiting for the dip and I missed the chance to buy at 50 because I was waiting for 40 and it goes to 3,000, that would have been the world's stupidest idea, which is kind of what Ram was just saying. So, mm. yep, but buying with a good value, who cares what happened yesterday or last year or the last five years? If, if today's price is, is cheap relative to the future price, that's all it matters. In fact, David Gardner, the Motley Fool co-founder, actually said doubling up. He said, don't double down, double up. In mm. other words, he's looking for growing businesses and when, they, when they're worth more at some point, future point, he's buying more because it's a still hard lesson. the future to be bright, right? Yeah, I think I, I'm, I feel as though I've learned that lesson. I've gotten a lot better yeah. at that, but it is a hard one to do. It feels oh, so tough. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you think, well, hang on, the share's now up, so now I'm buying, paying a higher price. Maybe this is exactly the wrong time to buy because the shares have gone up. Yeah, it, it is tough, but it's just it just makes sense, right? And mm. I don't know. It, it, as I said, it, biologically, this is the thing about investing, right? And frankly, by the way, if you can get this, this is why people like Andrew and I hopefully continue to do well. We're both market beating investors, I'm happy to say. It's why you should listen to us in part. We're also smart, intelligent, funny, handsome, good-looking. Of course. Um, but uh, <laughs> you've, you've got to learn that lesson, right? Because if you can beat your biology, you are ahead of most people and that is a really That's your competitive advantage. Yeah. Right, it is. Exactly. Yep. Let's go to a question from, I think it's Lucy. I think it's Lucy. Hi, I'm super interested in becoming a member of the Motley Fool community. The thing is, I'm on my second year of a work and holiday visa, which allows me to have a free account in the Commonwealth Bank. What I'm not sure is if once my visa expires, in the case I have to leave Australia, can I leave my account open? because my main interest was to start with a diversified portfolio in stocks as long-term investment, which would be more than five years. But I have no idea if in five years I'm going to be here. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. That's kind of a very, very specific question, mate. Um, I would, if I was in that position, Lucia, it was Lucia, not Lucy, Lucia. If I was in that position personally, I would use an international broker that gave me access to Australian shares. And therefore, I wouldn't run the risk of having to link an Australian bank account with something else. So there are others out there. Um, interactive Brokers is one I can think of off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure Charles Schwab does international markets in some degree. Um, if I was going to, if I wasn't sure where I was going to live, mate, I needed to make sure I could take the brokerage with me without being stuck with a, with a brokerage in one country that I couldn't then access. Um, it's really, un, it's really unlucky you couldn't access it all, frankly. With the internet these days and changing yeah. mailing address and bank yeah. transfers, you're probably okay. But if you're worried, find an international broker that offers brokerage in both your home country to to your to citizens of your home country. And Australians is how I'd probably think about it. You have a thought, mate? No, nothing to add. That's perfect. Easy. Question from Frankie. Frankie says, uh, hi, a comment for the podcast. A little while ago, a question was asked about the benefits of ETFs over the managed fund version of the same product. Totally agree with your points you made, but just wanted to share my own experience. I had a managed fund for a long time and have been chipping, uh, and, uh, have been chipping away. Decided to swap out to the ETF for lower fees. I decided I'd continue a dollar cost average into it, even working out the optimum timing to minimize brokerage, etc. But each month, when the day roll around, I would be looking at the share price. For the days before and after, I'd become a bit fixated on it, not wanting to overpay and getting caught up in it. It was taking a bunch of headspace and it felt like it was much more significant than it actually was. So I went back to the managed fund, which incidentally had also dropped its expense ratio and set up an auto BPay transfer each week. I barely think about it. It reminds me of the behavioural piece that you both often speak about. Left to their own devices, investments can do just fine. It's us that get in the way. 
Thanks for the banter and the time leading the next wave of investors. Cheers, Frankie. I like that insight, mate. That's a really, really good one. Yeah, that's great, Frankie. I mean, it, it there's something to be said for for doing an intentional hack on your on yourself. You know? yeah. So like, hang, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the only the only caveat here would be that um, you, you still want to make sure that the fund you're investing is a good one. Yeah. You know, you, you, again, yeah, it probably exactly. doesn't make a difference if it's a, if it's one or two percent different. Yeah. Even over, we know yeah. that that adds up over time. But I mean, still, that's not gonna that's not really gonna worry you too much. You just you just yeah. want to make sure that what you've got is still still going to um, do pretty well. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, brilliant, love it. Yeah, very good. Um, let's go to a question from Tim. Um, hey guys, love the pod and how generous you guys are with your knowledge. Uh, my question is, how much time would you dedicate to increasing your personal earnings versus time spent increasing your stock returns? Especially for those of us who are young, he says, Scott and I, thank you, Tim, you're my, now my favourite listener, and may have more potential for growing our own earnings. How do you think about this issue? It's, it's a good one, right? Because mm. if, if you can increase your wage, you can put a whole lot more in. And frankly, yeah. it's kind of all money for jam. If you can increase your wage and not increase your expenses... That the, the proportional increase in, in savings can be massive if you can if you can be disciplined about it. So, to to, to Tim's point, one thing to increase your, your return from eleven percent to twelve percent a year. But if you can if you can double your savings from ten to twenty grand a year, that's even better. At least in the, yep. in the early years. How, how do you think about that, mate? I, I I think it's a false dichotomy. I think you have your cake and you <laughs> eat it too. Quite happily, really. I, I think you you definitely want to work on mm. you know your career and your earnings power, and not just for the money, obviously, but for any satisfaction that comes with that. Um, but this is the great thing about long-term investing. It's not arduous. It's not you don't have to. I mean, yes, you can go. Yeah. You you can get right into it. But yeah. even if you're just doing the very very basic stuff, that's that's not hard at all. Like do mm-hmm. do both. If, if, I agree with you. If you're at the point where it's sort of like, do I dedicate an extra? I don't know, five hours a week to try and get from twelve percent <laughs> to thirteen percent. Yes, yeah. that's 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 probably not worth it. But yeah, yeah, I, I I think I think just doing the very basic stuff, you'll you'll be able to comfortably do but even it's just automatically putting money once a year into an etf boom job done and if yeah. it's something that you in, i've always said this with with investing is is like that's what you do and if if it's something that you inherently enjoy and i mm-hmm. i genuinely genuinely do yep. then putting more effort to it is, doesn't feel like work anyway it just feels a bit like play <laughs> so put as <laughs> put as much as as you're sort of uh comfortable to do but as long as you're doing something yeah. you, you can do yeah. both Yep, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, to, to, to Tim's, Tim's actually asking for the discretionary hour, what do I spend it on? So to some degree, you do have to make that decision of, you know, if, if you've got an hour, what do I spend it on investing or, or a career? Um, I would say that, in my personal opinion, the um, the amount of time, you, the, the proportion you should spend on your career is inversely proportional to your age. Mm. So at younger ages, if I could be 18, 20, 25, 30 and improve my earnings meaningfully, I'm more likely to deliver extra extra returns. As I said, if you can double your savings a year from 10 to 20 grand a year, for example, to pick two numbers, um, that is worth a whole lot more to you in the first 10, 15, 20 years of investing than any any extra return you can earn. Mm. By the time you get to 55, 60, hopefully you've got, I don't know, if you, if you do really well, six or seven figures to invest, um, you, can, you can probably earn more in a year, in a good year, from your investment returns than you can from your entire wage. And so at that point, if you had to invest, if I had to choose, if I was going to my head, you know, spend spend some time researching stocks, or spend time at five pm on a Sunday afternoon doing some work for the boss. Sorry, boss, if you're listening, um, I, I would I would choose. You know, I can have more impact in my investing if I because I'm dealing with larger larger amounts of cash. So mm. it probably should be a sliding scale. I agree with your point. Obviously, Ram, you can do both. Uh, why not both? As the cool kids say. Um, but also to really honestly, 
maybe the flip side of that is that because we know that investing is uh, an aggregational pursuit, in other words, we learn more and we kind of keep that knowledge and we're building on knowledge already. The other problem is by the time you get to 50, you've probably got most of the knowledge you're going to need to invest for the most part. You always read more about a company or whatever, but you kind of got the basics locked in at that point. So it is a bit of a, a tough one. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think you know, I don't, I don't think it is a fossil economy, but I would say early on, if I had the choice of trying to improve my, my investing returns between, uh, between 18 and 30 by a percentage point a year or finding a way to put more money away, savings are going to win in those early years. Yeah. Cool. Let's go to yep. a question from David. Actually, it's a question for Bess, actually. Bess just says, um, hi, one of the podcasts, you provided 10 investing books. Do you know where I can get that list? Yes, you absolutely can. Uh, in fact, one of our followers actually posted that list on Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, I don't know if you liked it or reposted it, Ram, but uh, you follow me on Twitter, you can go through my Twitter feed and I retweeted that, uh, I can't remember who actually, I should, I should looked it up, but uh, we had one of our listeners, really appreciated, uh, put it in Twitter. Uh, so you can actually go through my feed and pick that one up. Cool. All right. From David. G'day, Scott. Thanks for the podcast. You're very welcome. And thank you to Ram too. Um, I want to ask you about the exciting news about Afterpay being bought by Square. Huh? Depends how excited it is whether you own shares or not. I don't own Afterpay directly and I'm still kicking myself, says David, for not snatching it at $8 when I had the chance, mate, aren't we all? I do, however, own a large stake in the Beta Shares Australian Technology ETF of which 21% of its weight is Afterpay, pushing the ATEC, which is the code, price up nicely. My question is, with an ETF, and I suppose for any other retail investor of Afterpay, what happens when the takeover is finalised? Do investors get their proportionate cut of the money through their broker and their stake in the company is closed? And for the ETF, does this result in a large distribution to be paid or is it reinvested and rebalanced into other areas within the ETF sector? I once again come to a unique occurrence as an investor and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Full on and cheers, David. Do you want to go this one or do you want me to pick it up, mate? Uh, you go. Have a go. All right. So we've covered the Afterpay takeover in a bit of detail. Um, a quick plug, David, our YouTube channel, Motley, just search the Motley Fool Australia. We've done a couple of videos on that with the Motley Fool team about the takeover and what happens. So um, I, first thing I would say is I'm not going to cover it in as much detail as we did on that video now. So your best chance is actually stop listening to this, hit pause, go and watch the video, come back. Uh, once you've done that, I'll, I'll wait. Here we go. Okay. Now you're back. Um so have a look at that. The short answer for those other people who are listening who want to know the same thing is the takeover is being done in shares. And so unless you actively sell your afterpay shares, you will receive shares in Square instead. So effectively, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, your $1,000 worth of afterpay shares become the equivalent $1,000 worth of Square shares. It's a smaller number because the Square share price is larger, uh, but effectively, so you're getting, you get 35 and a half shares for every 100 you own in Square, but the dollar value will be the same. So $1,000 of Afterpay shares become $1,000 worth of Square shares, and they are also being traded on the ASX. So for all intents and purposes, you can do absolutely nothing. Now, I should say, just a little asterisk, the deal could change or not go ahead. So, you know, I can't promise this is actually what's going to happen if things change, but as it stands, if you simply do nothing, you'll wake up one morning and your brokerage account will have a set number of Square shares instead of, oh, there's my dog in the background. How good's that? Abby, enough. Um, you'll have a set number of square shares instead of a number of afterpay shares. <laughs> Dog, enough. Unhappy um, afterpay shares. She's barking as I'm walking past. The, um, <laughs> talk, about, talk about live podcast. The, um, uh, yeah, so you, if you do nothing, you can actually sell your afterpay shares now if you want to and get the cash. I don't know what that ETF is going to do. 
The ETF may sell the shares. They may not want Square or the ETF's own um, rules may prevent it from holding Square shares, in which case there will be a sale and they will rebalance that based on the ETF's own rules. You'd have to ask the ETF themselves about that. But there is no need to take the cash for other investors. There's no need to reinvest it. Um, if you don't want Square shares, as I said, just sell them. But if you do want Square shares, just simply do nothing and your portfolio will be replaced one for one or, well... 3, 0.375 for one as it turns out but dollar value wise you'll end up with Square instead of Afterpay any more on that with the I had another dad again no you nailed it nailed it beautiful Motley Fool Money for more subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener question from Dan this time uh, hi Scott and Andrew thanks for answering my last question very clear logical answers there you go uh, surprise, must have been your answer, mate. It wouldn't have been mine. Another housing question from Dan. I've been reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki recently. I believe you recommended reading it, Scott. No, I did not, but that's okay. Uh, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. And one of his points is you should treat your house as a liability rather than an asset. And that putting money into income creating assets is better than putting it into a house. My question is, what are your thoughts on this point? And also, what are your thoughts on buying a house and not investing versus lifelong renting and investing money in the market. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Dan. Uh, now, I will say very quickly, I I read once, someone say you should read the first half of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, then throw the book away. Um, I concur with that. I'm not a huge fan of the back half of the book, um, but the, the mental approach to thinking about income-producing assets rather than things that cost you money, uh, to think about compounding, there's there's some real value in that. Um, he gets into multi-level marketing pretty quickly and I won't, don't mean to insult anyone who's doing that, but um, it, it, it kind of takes a bit of a strange t- turn. And then frankly, most of Robert Kiyosaki's advice over the last 10 years has been terrible, uh, in my humble opinion, allegedly, hypothetically. Uh, I think that gets me out of jail. Um, so I, I, I there's plenty of better books than Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but the first half of the book is pretty good. If you can restrain yourself, read the first half and then, and then chuck it away. Um, Ram, is a house a liability or an asset? House is an asset. Absolutely it is. Anything that can potentially produce an income is an asset, I would right. argue. So, you know, even a piece of art could produce income because you can hire it out to a museum. Mm. Um, you know, people will pay to look at that kind of thing. So that's, I think at a very broad level it is. And so you could, you could, li- you could go live in a tent somewhere and rent out your house. And so, yeah, it's, absolutely it's an asset. I agree. Um, what about renting versus buying a house, mate? I, I happen to know someone you know who does that, uh, who, who's renting rather guilty. than rather than <laughs> yep. renting rather than rather than buying. Um, what are the? I, I guess I'll, I'll you feel free to give your overall thought, but the pros and cons uh, for each: buying a house and not investing versus renting and investing the, the leftover cash. I think we covered this exact question if it wasn't last week, the week before, um, really yeah. recently. So I won't yeah. I won't elaborate too much on it, but I, it, it the short answer for me is I think mathematically and with, with the caveats that you're investing well and you're disciplined, yeah. that renting is the better outcome. Yeah. Um, the practicality of it, though, is is that there's very poor tenancy rules in this country, <laughs> and you'll have yeah. no security, yeah. and will you know not be able to yeah. do anything, and be treated yeah. like a second class citizen, and it really sucks. Um, so there's there's that to consider as well. But yeah. there's there's a, yeah, I'm I'm going to resist the urge, mate, because it's such a mm. big topic, mm. and we did go right into the weeds recently. I want to say, yep. um, but yeah, that's that's the low level. Hi, yep, yeah. we did, we did it. It was, it was relatively recently. Um, I. So for me, I would just add a couple of things. If it's buy house versus not investing at all, 
Uh, I would uh, avoid. Uh, so I own my house. Well, paying the house off. Um, but uh, I wouldn't do it if I couldn't invest. So I, I've chosen that because I'm, I'm able to pay the house and invest. Um, if I had to choose between, if it's literally an either or question, I wouldn't do it. Um, well, it's, it's a lie. If, if my income was such that I could, I'm, I'm buying a cheap house and still can't afford it, then I'm still better to have a house than not. Uh, but for most people, if you're buying a house that's so expensive you can't afford to invest, you might want to lower your sights, which is not going to endear me to anybody because no one wants to be told to buy a cheaper house. We all want to buy bigger and better houses in better areas and all that kind of stuff. But I would lower your sights. I wouldn't, if I had the choice, buy a house and not invest. I would buy a house and invest. To Ram's point, uh, we did cover it. Lifelong renting and investing actually can be a much better result if you do it well. Uh, you've got to be super disciplined though. You've got to make sure you're investing the, the mm. savings. If you don't do that, it's the worst of both worlds. If you invest and don't, so if you rent and don't invest because you spend the extra cash, then you're absolutely, you know, it's yep. literally the worst of both worlds. Um, last thing I would say, mate, for what it's worth just very quickly is I have been reading recently that the rental yields are so low and interest rates are so low it, arguably, that maths may have changed a little bit. Are you are you up with the latest thinking? Because I, I did hear that buying hasn't been more affordable in like thirty years, at least from a repayment perspective. Um, it it may to some point get tip into being cheaper than renting. Do you do you know that off the top of your head? I don't. But again, you, okay. it, it all comes into the assumptions that that you use. Because yeah, yeah. even though that's true now, what do interest rates do in the future? You've now right, got a right. much larger. Uh, principal to pay off, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, you can make the case for either side. And, you yeah. know, on, on depending on what the property market does and in the share market and a million other variables yeah, yeah, in yeah. between. But, yeah, it, it's actually, it's actually. I mean, the, the, the value in owning a house is mm-hmm. the, is one of security. And that is that yeah. is a huge asset, uh, yeah. I, I think. As long, and the caveat for this one is as long as you're not putting a roof over your head at, at, at such a high degree of leverage yeah, and risk. That's right. And, and paying know. off so much a month you can't afford anything else, yeah. Yeah, that you've just got this huge yeah. thing around. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, as always, there's the right answer is somewhere in, in between if you can. <laughs> as long as you can do it sensibly, then yeah, I think there's huge, huge value in doing it. But I would, but then there's a the different question of, of buying as an investment. <laughs> and as you say, rental yields are the lowest. So are you going to fork out $2 million for something that you might get in real terms mm-hmm. after costs, you know, half a percent, <laughs> if that? Um I don't know. That's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, you, you'll like this, mate. Just, in, in the mailbag, we get questions on a whole lot of stuff. This one came from Kells. Uh, if you've seen me on, uh, on on the news every now and again, Kells says, hi, Scott. Can you please water your snake plant behind you? It's looking really sad. I've seen it on the late, <laughs> news, late night news a few times and it's getting worse. It would make me and the plant really happy. Thank you from Kells. I don't know if Kells is listening to the podcast, but Kells, if you are, I will, I will water the plant, I promise. I'll, yeah, do. Well, I'll... I'll I'll do my level best and see how we go in in watering the plant. Uh, I can't. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to be able to promise these things. You know what? So I had a. Um, here's the. <laughs> I did have a small plant Andrew, on the other side of my shelf for a while, and I didn't have any water in the in the um, in, in the little office. I'm in. I thought I could probably. I've got a bit of diet coke left in the diet coke can. I'll tip that in because it's probably kind of roughly the same, right? <laughs> it's, it's it's not the same. No, it's I, not. I, don't <laughs> it's don't not for anyone listening at home. Don't feed your plants. Okay. I. I literally killed the plant. And yeah. then, look, you know what? I should have probably known. I probably should have cared more. And I wish I had it. If I just didn't. And that's where you end up with. All right. <laughs> let's, let's keep going. Um, all right. Uh, dear, oh dear. So here's a question from Josh. And, and I think we probably know the answers, but let's go for it. Hi, hi, Mr. Phillips. says, my name is Josh. I would like to ask someone like me who is vision impaired and is living off one wage, how do you go about making money or having an income where you don't have to do anything? Is there something like penny stocks, for example, that I can purchase for extremely cheap and sell extremely high? My wife and I are true Aussie battlers and just need a little help. 
So be ever grateful if you could help. Uh, so if you could read and hopefully reply to us on the podcast. Thank you from Josh. This is a tough one, mate, and, and I I don't I don't envy Josh's circumstances. It's not like it's, it's, it's a tough life, and I you know I I love to think that it's easy to find stuff cheap and sell it high because that'd be you know we'd all do that if we could, and we'd all be millionaires and living in Bermuda or. Bahamas or something like that. Um, I'm almost a Beach Boys song at this point. Uh, for those who know Kokomo, it's uh, it's a tough one, mate. I, I ask the question. The answer is hopefully real, reasonably straightforward and obvious for most of our listeners. But um, there is no there is no free lunch. There is no get rich quick. There is no easy option. If it was possible, everyone would do it. And if everyone did it, then it wouldn't be possible anymore because the opportunity would just disappear, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um- why? So that's true. That's true. But and we've all got different circumstances. But we can yeah. all maximise our own circumstances. Yeah, nice. And and nice. unfortunately, you know, life is just going to be sucky and unfair. And some people are going to yep. be in better and worse situations for for right and wrong reasons and all that kind of stuff. But yep. I think whatever your situation is, mm-hmm. that is that if you can do something, you'll be better off than you otherwise would be. And that's yeah. that's why you want to do something yeah. the, the thing you've got to remember and it's the, the answer to the question is absolutely yes you can that you can buy penny stocks and you could turn it into a million dollars um so it is it is seen as an appealing path but but the, the thing you've got to hold in your mind is that it could all go very very wrong and then you could find yourself in a far worse situation yeah. so it's just not worth the, it's just not worth the gamble it's it's better to get there slowly or be yeah. confident of getting there yeah. <laughs> slowly than, than to try and get there quickly and just miss altogether and can I, can I just clarify, when you say, yes, you can do it, what you're saying is it's statistically, statistically possible that one penny stock at some point might go up a lot. Oh, well, someone but, wins the lottery every week. So, you know, yeah. it, it is absolutely possible that I win the lottery next week. There's not, no, not, not doable, but theoretically possible. Well, of course, it's, yeah, it's, it's doable. I mean, it could happen. It's, stranger things have happened, but it's just, yeah, yeah how, you've, you've got to adjust that with, with the risk aspect to it. And so it's, yeah. so the, the more practical answer is, well, put it this way, of, of all of the tens and hundreds of probably thousands of people who have tried to do that successfully mm-hmm. over a long-term basis, I can't think of anyone. Right, um, yeah. yeah. You know, that, that, there's always stories of people who have had incredible fortune and maybe a lot of effort was yeah. went into it as well, but to consistently do that with small cap stocks yeah. and to do it with, in a manner yeah. where you're, you're very highly uh, probable of a good <laughs> yeah, outcome, it just, right. it just doesn't exist. Life's, right. life's not that easy, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. So I, I, I don't blame you for asking Josh, but please, please don't try it. Uh, we can't give you personal advice, but for anyone listening, please don't try it. The chance of doing it well are really, really remote. And nothing, you know, the worst, the worst, worse than making nothing with your money is actually losing it because uh, yep. you try to chase a dream that that's not that probably not possible and almost certainly not possible. One from Nathan, mate. This is a bit of an inside baseball one, but worth talking about only because he asks the question. Hey, Scott, love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you, mate. A quick question regarding Motley's policy against cross promoting. You've had a bit of fair talk about managed funds recently, and you have specifically gone out of your way not to mention Lakehouse. Now, Lakehouse Capital is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Motley Fool Australia, Proprietary Limited, that I work for. Um, and so we own Lakehouse. Lakehouse Capital is a fund manager and it's run by some ex-Motley Fool staff or still Motley Fool staff in the, in the corporate sense, but no longer working for the brand. So let me put that in. Mike Nathan goes on, choosing to suggest ETFs instead. With all of Motley Fool's advertising, I wouldn't have thought cross-promoting would have been that much of an issue. He does say clickbait advertising. I, I left that bit out. Uh, I can't believe Lakehouse isn't advertised more aggressively. Joe's results are nothing short of amazing. Anyway, keep up the great work. Edutaining the masses. Full on from Nathan. I like edutainment. That's good. Isn't it? <laughs> yes. We try and do a bit of that. We try and be entertaining. We try and be educational. Uh, edutaining. I, um, it's, a, it's a good question, Nathan. Look, and I'm raising it. I could have replied directly to Nathan. I'm raising it because other people may wonder. Um, 
Honestly, Nathan, it, we could. We have our competitors who do both, happily do both, talk about both in the same breath. Um, we've taken a view inside The Motley Fool that we want to make sure that anyone either on our membership business, which I'm involved in, or the funds management business, which Joe Mega runs, there's the Joe that Nathan talks about, um, can be absolutely confident that there is nothing untoward going on between the two businesses. Um, it would be possible, sh- would we, sh- should we be um, nefarious? We could buy a, a stock in the fund and then I could go and talk about it all the time on, on TV or radio or in our membership business and try and get the price up and then Joe could bank the savings and we could do a little, lovely, lovely little scam pushing, trying to push prices up. Equally, uh, we could do the same in reverse. We could recommend a stock and then Joe could go and buy it and it would push the price up and our members would be stoked because look at all the money we made because of all of a sudden this buying pressure that came in pushed the price up. We could it'd be a lovely scam. We could probably get away with it too. Um, we choose not to. We don't want to, obviously. You know, hopefully it goes without saying it's not the way I operate and the way Joe operates or our business operates globally, let alone locally. Um, but should we choose to, we could do it that way. Others do have combined businesses and I don't suggest there's anything nefarious going on, but it raises the question. If someone was to ask, how do I know? Well, just trust us might be the answer. Um, we just simply said, okay, let's just separate it. Let's just, in fact, only recently we've got now got separate financial services license numbers for the two businesses. We have literally separated the businesses out as much as physically possible. Um, in that, we, again, on the same basis, try to simply just do it completely separately. So we don't talk about Lakehouse much. Um, I might try and have Joe on the podcast, probably the Good Oil podcast at some point. Uh, we'll see if we can organise that. And that, and that way it's a public forum and a public conversation. Uh, but even, Joe and I don't talk about stocks. We're not, we're, are we allowed to legally? Yes. Uh, the Lakehouse team and the Motley Fool team don't talk about stocks ever. When we get together, it's this really weird thing where former colleagues who used to talk about stocks all day um, just simply don't anymore. We just we, we talk about football and baseball and news and kids and whatever, and we just avoid talking about stocks. And if it actually comes up, everyone kind of freezes and looks at each other nervously and we move on to something else. Um, and that's just the way we've chosen to be. So, Nathan, to your point, could we? Yes, absolutely. Uh, are Joe's results great? Yes, they are. Uh, Joe and the team, he'd, he'd want me to say that there's a big team there and they're all doing a great job. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. But... Uh, for, for absolute probity, for absolute avoidance of any concerns about anything, we just simply don't talk about it uh, and they don't talk about us and it's just the way we do it. So I have broken that rule to, to answer your question only because, again, other people will ask about it, but that's that's basically the reason behind it. Cool. Um, let's go on to a question from Kurt because, hi, Scott, I didn't mean to reach out. Oh, sorry. Uh, I said a different one question. Patrick, sorry. Uh, might have lost. Here we go. Um, here we go. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I enjoyed your reference to ABC's Conversations podcast recently and thought to myself, I actually listen to every Motley Fool podcast, but only some of the conversations. Jeez, you can't get better praise than that. You absolutely cannot, Patrick. I I'll take that. Ha- have a good hard look at yourself, mate. Uh, Richard <laughs> Filer is a much better interviewer than I am. Um, to, to listen to more Conversations podcasts. I have a hopefully simple question, he says. What is up with the volatility in the large Asian, Asian share prices? I'm thinking specifically of those in the Asia ETF. That's the Beta Shares Asian Tigers ETF. Is that kind of volatility something you simply factor in as a risk in a differently regulated market? Thanks, Patrick. To really make Asian stocks, Chinese stocks in particular, have been absolutely on the nose mm. for the last few weeks. They've been going through the floor. We've had a bit of a conversation internally with the guys saying, gee, is China too cheap to ignore now? And it's a really, really good question because not just volatility, but as Patrick nicely phrased it, differently regulated, mm. uh, which is, I think, um, uh, maybe, maybe Patrick has, has uh, hopes to go to China at some point. I'm almost certainly not going to be let in, so I will call it autocratically regulated by a one-party state. Um, and we've seen Jack Ma, head of Alibaba, effectively become persona non grata in China. 
regulations and rules imposed unilaterally on those companies. And the share price have tanked as, as a result because people all of a sudden look around going, well, hang on, what happens if that's us next time? Um, or what, what do they do next? What other rules do they impose? Can I, can I really expect a decent result or, or, or a decent return? How do, I, how do I adjust for risk? There's some of the thoughts that people are having when it comes to Asian stocks. I do own units in the Asia ETF, I should say, for, for full disclosure, excuse me. Um, so let's, let's, I just want to make sure I say that out loud so that we don't have any issues with disclosures. Your thoughts, mate, though, on China or on, on investing in other markets on the Asia ETF or, or Asian volatility share prices, how do you think about all that? Yeah, I actually stay away. I, it's it's um, the sovereign risk is just really a thorny one. Isn't I it? <laughs> it's it's potentially massive. Um, yeah. maybe it's it's just not a, as big a deal as as, yeah. as it yeah. might be. I, I don't know. I don't know how to put a handle on it. There's on mm -hmm. one hand, you kind of look at some of the companies over there, and they they are they're they're just like sort of the Amazons and the Netflix mm. and the Googles mm. and stuff of of there. They're, they're fantastic mm. companies, but mm. yeah, the, the Chinese government could do anything at any time, and and on top of that, you've just got the normal risks of investing internationally, like currency and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. So, yeah, I've kind of stayed away. Even even on companies that I've owned on the ASX that have gone into China, yeah. I think pretty much in all circumstances, it's not worked out well. It's always <laughs> gone with a lot of family. Oh, it's this huge market. We're going to crack China. Yeah. And they almost always come back with their tails yeah, between their legs. Right. Exactly. It's a different market. It's a different yeah. world in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, and it? and it's it's one that I don't... I've always thought that to invest, you, you need to sort of stay within your circle of competence. And I'm. it's just partly me acknowledging that I just mm -hmm. have no specialist knowledge on China <laughs> that, that that allows me to sort of put a put a, a, yeah. a number on that risk and so but I, I do think it's I do think it is potentially a big risk I just yeah. I just can't nail it down yeah I so I have units in the Asia ETF largely just for global diversification it wasn't it wasn't an active choice to say it's a really good price right now I love those specific companies I took a very passive approach to say that I've said many, many times, I think many more Australians should invest overseas. And thus far, my investments have been largely US-based. Um, I do have units in the Vanguard Global ETF, which includes some of the developing, uh, sorry, developed markets. But the Asian ETF for me was just kind of <laughs> completing the set, right? <laughs> if I'm doing collector cards, I'm just even completing the set. I'm, I'm buying that as well. Um, I actually think it's very likely the next 10 or 20 years two or three of the top 10 companies in the world are in China and or India. The populations there, the pace of the economic growth there, the um, frankly, just they're copying the business models of some of the big giants like the Amazons, Googles, Facebooks and others. Um, uh, Tencent is a business over there. Uh, you know, Weibo, um, a whole lot, of, whole lot of, I don't know India quite so well. I don't know China that well at all. And basically my, my thinking was simply straight out, look, I'm not culturally or language, uh, from, from a language perspective, across that market at all. I just simply don't, I, I couldn't make a judgment call. I don't speak any of the Chinese languages. I don't speak any of the Indian languages. Um, I don't know their cultures well enough at all. But if I'm right that a couple of billion people between them, in fact, almost three billion between them, um, you know, there's a decent chance some of those biggest and best companies in the next 10, 20 years come from those areas. It would be silly for me not to have some exposure to them. So I have a small portion of my portfolio in that Asian ETF um, to your point, Patrick, your question, I, I'm not worried about the volatility. I'm just, it's a passive holding. I'm going to let it do its thing. Uh, it may well be that in time it's worth less because China continues to in, interrupt and in, involve itself and that destroys value. And if that's the case, I may well not do as well with that as others. Um, or the converse might be true that despite 
the meddling of the government, these businesses get bigger and bigger over time because the markets get bigger, they become more dominant. And like in the West, um, the biggest companies tend to get bigger. They, they buy, build, um, take over, destroy other businesses and the biggest get bigger. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was the case with some of China's biggest companies. So that's, that's my thinking behind it. It's very, very passive. It's an active kind of investment approach or idea but my holding there is passive. I, I can't imagine selling at any point over the next 10 or 20 years unless I want the money or unless I've got a better idea um, or unless I lose complete faith in that system. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just I, I, hearing you talk there, I think, yeah, there is, there is so much exciting stuff going on in that part of the world. Yep. But there's, I was watching something the other day. Was, I, I forget the year, I want to say mid-20th century, where China just nationalized a bunch of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, And a lot of uh, English and US, I forget the name of the company, but they just got done. Basically, the money was just stolen. Now, that's a very different point in time and the rest of it. But there's tensions that are out there that are potentially growing. It just, and if it did, even if it's an unlikely scenario, if it did happen, it would be, well, everything. God, I've just lost everything. Um, And even if that's just on one or two companies, but they're they're combined 15% of the ETF. I don't know. I'm probably overthinking it. I'm probably overthinking it, but it's just... (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I, there, there, and it's also I've, I've often said there's so much I find opportunity here. I don't I don't actually yeah, diversify true. as much overseas as perhaps I should, yep. but I just feel as I don't. Unfortunately, Scott, I don't have a billion dollars, so of the little <laughs> money that I've got, there's plenty. I, of, I'll, I'll lend you I'll lend you a billion of mine if you want. That's fine. <laughs> no worries. You know what I mean? I just there's, yeah, I, I, yeah. I can find lots of really interesting, compelling opportunities on yep. the ASX where I feel as though I know a bit more about what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Like that whole, I mean, it's a whole bigger conversation at some point. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and, and adding adding more countries adds more research load, right? To, to get to know yeah. American companies, let alone Chinese companies or Brazilian companies or Swiss companies, the, 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 the you know, you kind of double, triple, quadruple your, your investable universe. Yeah. And so you've got to do, in theory, you know, many times more work. So there's that. On the other hand, the reason I invested internationally is not, it's partly for pure diversification. In the case of the Asian ETF, it absolutely is. Um, I've got the Vanguard Global MSCI um, ETF, which is also just pure diversification. So that's true. I have a, a slight expectation that, that the US market beats the Australian market over time, for example. So I think I'll probably get market beating returns from that, but that's that's only kind of tangential. When I when my direct investing though, I, I when I'm asked this question, I kind of say, investing only in Australia is like saying to a real estate agent, I'd like to buy a house, but please don't look in suburbs beginning with B. You know, and mm. I say that because if you said globally, if you're an alien came to Earth and said, I've got this whole world's worth of investing opportunities, I'm going to pick that little landmass down in the bottom there and I'll invest all of my money there. You'd never consciously do it. So it's the home country bias to some degree that says, let me spend all my time, most of my time investing in, the, in Australia. Now we know more about it, as you say, Ram. So we have an edge to some degree over the rest of the world. But on the flip side, to my mind at least, um, and Doc said this when he was on the podcast, I would start with where are the best investments I can find individually, not, not even country, not starting with America's better than Australia, therefore invest there, or Australia's better than America, invest there. But of all the available options I can research and know reasonably well, what am, where am I most comfortable putting my money? So I mentioned on Friday, Kogan and Amazon, right? I think I can understand the Amazon business really, really well. And I think I have not necessarily an edge in, in its own self, in its own sake, but I think with the time edge and the ability to withstand volatility means I'm really happy investing in Amazon, for example. Now, I could put that money in an Australian company that I understood well. I just think investing in Amazon is a smart idea. And if they were all listed on the ASX, I'd happily buy Amazon. Or if they're all invested, listed overseas, I'd happily buy Amazon. So I kind of, I try, I don't, I don't ever succeed, but I try to be market agnostic and just invest in the best ideas I can find. So there is, it kind of goes a bit both ways to my mind. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. 
What would make you invest overseas? Anything? Um, I think there's a really interesting opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, someone laid out something. I think it's not hard to to to, yeah. to make it happen. Um, yeah. I guess just on your analogy, though, if you're an alien, you sort of. But the difference is we're not. Like I've, I'm born and bred here. <laughs> yeah. This I just know it, yeah, and and yeah, yeah, we yeah. we actually get CEOs to come along to for us at Strom, and we get to speak yeah. to them. It just, it's yeah, just sure. I if if, if I was looking Makes around and there was just like really ordinary opportunities, I think yeah, that would sort of yeah. be more of a push factor than a pull. Yeah, factor. that's fair. That's and fair. I'm probably leaving some money on the table, but I've just I've just sort of evolved to a far more yep. uh, concentrated, tightly held. Small cup. I don't know. I feel as though I found my place as an investor, and I'm sort of happy yeah, here. And until it, until it stops working, I'm not. I'm just not looking. <laughs> even though that there's Makes maybe sense. really other attractive ponds there. Can I give you one really great reason to invest in Australia rather than the US? Yeah, and it's an idea that I think hopefully works out with Kogan. Um, we've followed it with Templar Webster at the Motley Fool and some others. Sometimes you get a chance to kind of. I, I've, I've called it. We've seen this movie before. Mm. Mm. We get to kind of go. So hang on. Kogan is doing the same thing Amazon did X years ago in the US. So if I just kind of follow that logic, it's not going to be Amazon, of course, but I can, I've seen this movie before and I know, I know how, kind of how this works. Or Templar Webster, there's a business in the US called Wayfair, which has been doing online furniture retail for longer than Templar Webster. Mm. And you kind of go, so hang on, I've seen this movie. I, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't follow that it must work out, but you kind of get to handicap the odds, right? It's like, so this business model pursued this way tends to work that kind of, you know, if you, if you think about a loaded dice or a, or, a, or a weighted coin, it goes from a coin flip to a 60-40 or a 70-30 or something because it's like, so this market's underpenetrated in online commerce and Templar Webster are doing the same thing Wayfair did in the US the same way. Yeah. And unless Australians act differently to the Yanks, which we might, then there's a pretty good chance these guys are onto something. And so the, the, we've seen this movie before is actually a great reason to invest in the US, sorry, Australia, rather than the US. And there's even Australian companies like Frontier Digital Ventures. I don't know if you follow them. Yeah, I know that, um, yep. They're taking the classifieds business model to the developing world, and so you can even take the. I've seen it in Australia. You know, I've seen this movie before. Sometimes it's it, it's not again. It's not guaranteed, but you can get a pretty good leg up on some of these businesses by looking at the business model, trying to take an analog from overseas, and kind of go, oh, I see. I, I see. Well, I know what this looks like. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'd actually say, I mean, s- smaller can be better. Like in, in, yeah, in, when you're an investor, you're yes. competing against yes. all the other people out there that could buy. <laughs> Uh, shares or people that hold yep. shares that could, that could sell them to you. Now, if I'm yep, yep, looking yep. at a $50 million ASX listed company, I might yep. literally be dealing with a universe of people that are 2,000, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yep, yep. Whereas whereas I, if I'm, if it's Amazon, for example, it's <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. best and brightest hedge fund managers and this is literally hundreds of thousands of people watching and scrutinising yeah, that. Totally. It's just, I, I feel as though it's it's that's another form of edge. It's not necessarily bad that if all of yeah. a sudden some of the, the yeah. really great investors from overseas focused on the ASX small cap space, I'd be in trouble because all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not on the in the, in the yeah, top the yeah. top cohort of, of the the top half of at least people who who can yeah, sort right. of get, find an edge there. So anyway, I, I think I don't think it's necessarily bad to be small. I like it. I like it. My second question from Patrick quickly on, uh, speaking of Lake House, who we were before, um, Patrick had a different view. He says, hi, Scott and Andrew. Um, uh, oh, sorry, hang on. Oh, man, I lost it. It's, it's great. You know, you listen to the radio sometimes and the whole SMS thing refreshes. I've just had one of those experiences. <laughs> um, here we go. Um, really enjoying the mailbag episodes, others' questions, and your responses prompt more thoughts. Following on from the Lake House Managed Fund question, which was a previous one, I wonder why there isn't a Motley Full Managed Fund. I appreciate you guys are a newsletter service, but I'm curious if there's room or the economics of the business to do both and if there's simply an underlying reason why you prefer the newsletter rather than simply investing others' money based on your picks. Thank you. Well, that's an easy one. Thanks, yeah. Patrick. Go on. 
Well, it's the answer. It's, well, you, you're doing it. Kind of, with like house, yeah. Uh, I, you know what? I, sorry, it's funny. A bit, bit of inside baseball. I have a different view to the rest of the business, or some of the rest of the business on this one. Patrick, I actually agree with you. Um, I think, I think a motley for branded fund might actually be useful. Um, but the Lake House guys doing their own thing, their own way, and uh, they're, they're, the, they're the experts and the gurus here. I, I guess, look, you know, from a business perspective, could we use the motley for brand and tip some more people into a fund? Probably. Um, hopefully, over time returns do it do the job themselves right no matter what you call a fund if you can show people you're getting good results hopefully uh, people are prepared to follow it but i appreciate the the kind words mate i think it's a um it's look i i flattered that you're interested put it put it that way uh yeah it's a nice nice thing to say thank you mate uh last one for us i reckon today ram from jordan Mm -hmm. uh oh here we go (laughs) hi scott question for the special mailbag for the good oil provider and the straw man himself there you go Jordan's managed to wrap out four different podcast references into his opening sentence. Well done, Jordan. Thank nice. you, mate. I always hear from investors about their biggest regret sales, as in companies they sold at a time where it may have made sense to sell, although those exact issues did not matter so much in the long run. We've certainly been through our, our worst sales before, Ram. We've, we've covered ourselves in mm-hmm. well, not so much glory, whatever the opposite of glory is. Can you and Ram tell me, says Jordan, about your happiest sales, meaning stocks that continue to fall post your selling and why you made them at the time? Appreciate your response, Jordan. I, we, we don't we don't want to overly cover ourselves with again that, that glory round, but he asked a decent question. We've kind of said, well, look, these are the sales we wish we hadn't made. Are there any sales you can think of that you're glad you made? You kind of go, yeah, I, that's that was good. I've I've done well there. And any lessons we've got from those? Yes, oh, definitely. Jeez, uh, uh, RFG back in the day. Um, oh man. Well, that, you know, I, oh. I took a loss on that, but it, the loss the loss <laughs> yeah. would have been ten times greater if yeah. I didn't sell what I did. Um, yeah. I tell you, you know, it's interesting. One of the best on a dollar basis investments that I actually made is a surprising one. When I was looking at my stuff the other day, was um, uh, API Australian Pharmaceutical yeah, Industries, right. um, and it was just it was really cheap. You could get it for like forty cents or something, and it just had this re-rate on the market up to a dollar sixty. And I kind of thought it was like I liked the business, I was in it for the long term, but the, the market just sort of gave me something that I felt was stupid, and I sold yeah. out. And it's like I don't think it's done much ever since. It's just sort of drifted back again. So that was nice. That's that always good when it, like I, I'm usually awful at timing, but sometimes just through sheer dumb luck, <laughs> exactly. you get it right. Times. Eventually, you get it right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, you buy, you always buy, I always buy a share on the presumption that it's cheap and that at yeah. some point the market will yeah. rec- agree with me. But sometimes it, very rarely, it, it agrees with you very quickly and very strongly. And you're going, oh, well, I wasn't that yeah, bullish that on case. it. Um, yeah, right. You know, so right. I, I did, was going to be a long-term investment, but I actually, <laughs> yeah, I'll just take that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. How about you? I'm trying to think, mate. Um, my, the, the happiest sales I've made are the ones where I feel like I've got the process right, quite honestly. So, um, uh, you know, I, I like to hold for the long time. I, I really find selling painful, um, partly because it may be psychologically painful because it means I made a mistake or, or maybe there's something about the, the business that I, don't, I no longer want to hold. And I've done so much work to own it. And I've, done, I've gone through the process and tried to get it really right. And occasionally I don't get it right and that goes horribly badly. Um, so, but some of the ones I'm proudest of, I suppose, the ones where I've sold for the right reasons. So Coca-Cola Amatil is the one that's no longer listed. That... Oh, yeah. Um, I bought for the I bought for all the right reasons, except I missed the idea of the, I've talked about this before, but um, you know, wonderful business, super strong moat, like really fantastic. Just there wasn't enough growth left. And if you buy a business at, at a at a at a reasonably it wasn't a premium price, but it was a full price, and there's no growth left, it's very very hard to make your money back, right? Mm. And that's that's kind of one where 
I stuck with it, stuck with it, stuck with it. I just went, oh, you know what? This is just silly. Like, I'm, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm going to get out. It makes no sense to do anymore. Um, so there's that collection house and along your your uh, RFP oh, yeah. lines. Same here. Was another one that we we I owned personally. We owned or we recommended at Motley Fool Share Advisor. Um, we it went badly, and it was one of those businesses where yeah. Sometimes we talked about the thirty to forty percent fall, and you know, do we do we catch a falling knife? And, and sometimes when businesses fall, they just are bad businesses. And it's one of those situations where I got to say I was really surprised by this one going badly. They seemed to have all the stuff going for them. They were doing really well. Their margins were good, and the thing just imploded. And mm. I'm still not entirely sure I have a good answer as to why it went so badly and why it couldn't have gone better because it should have. There really was no good reason why this business. Should I have can failed, tell you why. I, it's, on. it's one of those. It was there was a lot of attractiveness in the business model when things go your way, but when things yeah. go against you, it can really. Yeah. It's a real leverage. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that was the lesson for me. Finance companies yeah. are. It's actually something I've stayed away from as a general rule yeah, since then. It might have scared me off Collection House a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there was, there was one of those ones where, you know, there was no clear reason why it was going to improve. And so, yeah, we made some money by, by doing it, which was great. Um, and, you know, ha- happy to have not lost more money on the process. Uh, I've missed plenty, as I said before, so I'm not, 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 um, not going to say I'm a genius. But yeah, it was one of those situations where I, just, I felt like it was, it was the right call to make at the right time. Saved us some money on the way down. Um... Other businesses are tough. I, you mentioned RFG, mate. I still feel um, aggrieved about RFG. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it, trying to separate out luck from from happenstance and and from good judgment is really really hard, right? Mm. Um, you can you can find a, a business that you sell for the right reason or the wrong reason that goes different ways. We've talked before about there is. There is the the action and there is the outcome. And sometimes good process gives you bad outcomes. Sometimes good process gives you good outcomes. And again, sometimes bad process gives you both good and bad outcomes for reasons that they shouldn't or you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't recognise or, or appreciate. Uh, but that was just, I think, I think useful. I think it was one of those one of those circumstances where, um, I, yeah, I, I'm still not sure it was an engineered outcome. But that's a that's a whole different story. You know, for me, what I was happy about there was that because I remember I was with you guys at the time. And, yeah. And I'd had it as a recommendation and it was yeah. around like five bucks and it was down about two bucks or so, I think, when we yeah. got out. Um, it was just, I just, it's not that he's like, it, with hindsight bias, he was, oh, I always knew it was going to go bad. I totally, <laughs> I totally didn't. Yeah, right. I just didn't have enough confidence yeah. that, that it yeah. wasn't that way either. And and yeah. it's always, it's been a very powerful lesson for me over the years is that with investing, uh-huh. it's okay to say, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I just didn't know. And it, it, when in doubt, I think get out is actually a good mantra to sort of, yeah. to sort of have. And it's yeah. different if you can say, actually, no, this is cheap. The market has got it wrong. This is an opportunity. I just couldn't make it. And maybe it turned yeah. out that way, but I think it would have still been the right decision, even if shares had bounced strongly. Because if you mm-hmm. if you're no longer confident in the investment case, yes, that yes. it's you don't have to be confident in it being bad. You just don't. Mm-hmm. You just have to be not confident in it being good, <laughs> and that yeah. alone is a reason to get out. That that was the lesson for me there. And look, what in hindsight, what a horrible thing. Five down to two dollars, a horrible loss. Well, now it's eight cents. That's so two dollars right, exactly. to eight cents. It was a great decision. Yes, it was exactly. a great decision. Um, a couple others for me. Westfield. Um, uh, it was the Westfield Development Company, the old Westfield Group, was a remarkably great money builder, money maker. Um, when you combine the two businesses together and look at the future of the the business, uh, it just it just it was a very middling investment. I think will continue to be a middling investment. Um, so just one of those things where the value you saw, the quality you saw, just simply evaporated. Mm. It, it, still a great retailer, great brand, all good things. From an investment perspective, is it going to give market value returns? I really don't think so. Mm. Um, that was a few years ago. I sold that. Quite a few years ago, I sold that one. 
Um, rock oil. Uh, I've owned for a little while. Uh, years rock years oil? Years ago. Remember rock oil? Do you remember rock oil? You had shares in rock oil. <laughs> I know, a very long time ago. I wow. want to say like 15 years ago, literally a Blown long time me away. ago. Mm. Um, well, it was one of those, I lost money on it, as you, unsurprisingly. Not surprising. Um, but it was one of those ones that I, I didn't have any business owning. So again, in terms of the good sales, um, I don't actually know where it went after I sold it, but it, maybe somehow it doesn't qualify exactly to the question that was being asked. Oh, QBE too. I owned QBE for a while. Dear, oh dear. I've had, I had some shockers in my, in my career. Um, giving up on the right idea at the right time, I think, is, is, is probably the smartest series of, of good decisions I've made where I've looked at it again and gone, either what was I doing owning it or it's not the business I bought or something else. Well, um, yeah. that's probably a good, good option. And, 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 to that, and to that point, so the thing, the take-home message here is, is whoever you are out there listening, you're going to have these experiences, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's just going to happen. That's, so yeah, you'll know yeah. in hindsight whether it turned out to be a good sell or <laughs> a bad right. sell, but, it, but it's yes. always an opportunity for me to, to also yeah. understand what went wrong. Yeah. So I don't actually, I mean, I'm going to make mistakes as an investor. Where I kick myself yes. is where I make the same mistakes. You know, it's sort of like you were talking before about, oh, I've seen this movie yeah. before. Well, it's like, I've been yeah. in this situation before where this mm. thesis isn't playing out, but then I rationalize it because the price goes down a bit further and then I argue, oh, well, it's in the price. Mm. You know, you, you, it's, it's, it's okay to make the, the mistake once or twice. After a while, if you keep doing the same thing, it's like you've got to question what you're doing buying shares in the first yeah, place. that's right. I, I really think, that's you know, right. so you take the lesson. And that's the great thing about it is that yeah. I, I will be much more prudent and probably just avoid certain finance yes. companies in the future. I probably will be... <laughs> More wary of rollout of franchisee donut yes, shop, yes. you know these kinds of things. They're they're kind of they're good experiences. So, so I was going to stop this because we've talked for a while. But I'm going to you, you mentioned the last three words you said or the five words you said. I'm going to pick up. The only thing I would say and I say this to our members, uh, our team, all our investment team all the time is be careful you don't learn the wrong lessons, mm. right? Because yeah. I, I'm I'm going to go back very quickly to the RFG debacle, and so journos and short sellers looked around and went, oh, Domino's, that's like RFG. I'm going to short the hell out of that thing. And the shares went from 75 to 40 from memory, give or take. And so, you know, I'm not going to buy franchises. I'm not going to buy fast food companies. Domino's is going to go like RFG. Mm. There's only a disaster waiting to happen. The journos jumped on board and stick the boot in. The short sellers jumped on board because they could smell a bit of a you know, bit of blood in the water and they could easily draw that line between, hey, look, that's like RFG, but different. Let's do that. Mm. Um, Domino's has gone from 40 to $150. Mm. And so I, I'm not disagreeing with you, mate, and you're right to avoid the wrong companies. Uh, or the right companies. Yeah, I didn't want to suggest you stay away from any kind of food retailing. No, but, but that's why I want to make the point. Like you say, yeah. franchise donut companies versus franchises in general. And also, you know, was RFG the exception or the rule? And again, I don't know the answer to that. It may well be the rule because Domino's may be the exception, right? So uh, or Domino's may well crash to $20 at some point. We go, see, it was exactly like RFG. I just want to, I just want to draw the mm. line that to some degree, I say this to the guys all the time, as I said, they, they're sick of me saying it, but... One of, the, one of the things I think investing is you want to learn lessons from your successes and failures, mm. but you want to make sure you don't learn the wrong lessons. And yep. that's one for me. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the lesson for RFG should be. Um, probably, you know, um, slow growth, uh, maybe not a great head office culture. I, you know, you draw some lessons from that. Maybe. Oh, it was the management um, lesson for me. I mean, just, you know, there, right, was, there was right. a lot of red flags and I, right. was, I was pretty, uh, I, in hindsight, too sanguine about them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of smoke <laughs> coming <laughs> from certain areas of the business. Yeah. I like it, I like it. Anyway, um, just one I, of those. I hear your point. It's a good point. Just it is a good point. Learn the, learn the right lesson. That'll do. 
With that, mate, we will finish up. But would you come back next Friday? Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it, man. Thank you. In the meantime, make sure you do subscribe to the Motley Fool Money podcast. Do it through your favourite Android podcast app, your favourite Apple podcast app, or the listener app from our good friends at Southern Cross Stereo. You can, of course, uh, also subscribe to The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, which is a podcast I hear is very, 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 very good. Um, from an anonymous source who may or may not have been my mother. Uh, so if you want to subscribe to either or both those, we really would appreciate it. Leave us some reviews, if you will. It helps people find the podcast. Um, go to fool.com.au. Go to strawman.com. Have a look at some of the services we have to offer. Uh, yes, that's a blatant plug. And yes, uh, some of our services are free and some are paid for. If you don't like the value, don't pay. If you do like it, then uh, we're there for you. And we hope you give us a look and maybe consider what we have to offer and what you know, we might be able to help you invest just a little bit better as well. With that, until next week, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.